0: Even if a festival, say, feels ready to return, their, you know, premiere venue may not be open. We all have to work together again, like distributors and the exhibitors and the festivals and the filmmakers to really convey, especially to the audiences, you know, what the messages and when it's safe to come back.
1: this is the box office podcast i'm russ fisher the editorial director of the box office studios which provides editorial content to movie theaters and i'm joined by rebecca polly the deputy editor of box office pro and sean robbins the chief analyst at box office pro now we've got a couple of things we're going to cover today first of all i want to remind you to take our survey to give us feedback on the podcast you can find the link to the survey in the podcast description uh, wherever you're finding the podcast. just helps us get a sense of what you want, what you don't. You probably don't want to hear me talking about Dune anymore, especially since it's now a 2021 movie. But any information you can give us via the survey would be a big help. Today, we're going to talk about the domestic news and the international news, neither of which are very good. We're going to run down the November slate with Sean, and then we have a terrific interview with Leela Meadow-Connor the executive director of the Film Festival Alliance. And uh, we're we're going to talk with her about how COVID and everything else in 2020 has reshaped the festival circuit and kind of what that means for a whole variety of topics. The first thing we're going to hit is the fact that Studio Movie Grill this week announced that it is going into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about what that means and, and where Studio Movie Grill is currently positioned and how things might change.
2: Uh, you know what it means. I think is the same thing that, that we've been talking about for the entire length of this podcast. COVID's here. It's really bad, and it doesn't look like it's going away anytime, anytime soon. So, yeah, l- like you said, the news. This podcast is is not necessarily positive and optimistic. So, Studio Movie Grill is the tenth largest chain in the United States, eleventh largest uh, in North America. If you count Canada in there, it's actually the second. Top chain to file for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy since COVID came to North America. Uh, the first was CMX, which uh, which filed for bankruptcy uh, closer to the beginning of, of all this. You know, it's it's the news isn't good. They're they're going to be closing an unspecified number uh, number of theaters. And taking some time to kind of reevaluate their lease situation. However, the rest of their cinemas uh, will remain open. You know, the official news that came in from SMG said it's going to be business as usual there. They're still going to be screening films. We're not financial analysts here, but I, I think we all know and want to reiterate that, that filing uh, for Chapter 11 does not mean that, uh, that the chain's going to go under and close its doors permanently. Tomorrow, it just means a, a financial restructuring. You know, in terms of Studio Movie Girls specifically, they came into 2020 with some plans for expansion. You know, mid 2019, they got some some nice investment money, and just uh, I think earlier this year, like before all this, they said we're going to open new theaters this year. They announced, you know, five theaters they plan to open in 2020. Most of them, they didn't. So, you know, I I think this just speaks to the wider state of affairs right now, where how well you do or how poorly you do during COVID kind of depends on how you came into it in terms of your finances, uh, in terms of uh, the resources you have at your disposal. And it's... (laughs) it's not anybody's fault. It just happens. It's really bad, bad timing and a bad position that that SMG found themselves in. And like you mentioned, unfortunately, uh, we also have some bad stuff happening over in the European markets right now to talk about. Um, There are a lot of fiddly little details. You know, Russ, what's uh, what's going on over there?
1: Yeah, the you know, to quickly run through this, we don't need to go into every specific detail, but the short version is that European cinemas in quite a few regions are facing new closures as... Cases spike in various areas of Europe. So we're looking at Italian cinemas closing from October 26th to November 24th. And then in other regions, we've got Brussels has cinemas closing, some areas of Switzerland, uh, the Czech Republic was just coming out of a two week reclosure, uh, which was supposed to run until October 26, so now we're waiting to see whether that is going to be lifted or extended. Cinemas in Ireland are still closed. Wales uh, is, has a firebreak strategy going on, so they're now closed until November 9. Romania and some Russian regions are also closed. So you know, it's not everywhere; it's not a blanket closure, but it is another one of those instances of uh, we're seeing some cases spiking. So each region is trying to address that spike and contain it as best they can. Uh, So now, Rebecca, we've also got some other restrictions, but not quite closures that are going on in other places, right?
2: No, um, that, that's true. And in, in other in other regions uh, around Europe, there have been governmental restrictions uh, that mainly at this point are falling into two categories. Uh, it's either a restriction in F and B sales in some countries, in some regions, that might be, you know, you can only eat, you know, in this, in this part of the cinema. If you have like a bar, restaurant in the cinema, you have to close that. Um, some places are limiting sales on alcohol countries that have been affected by this include uh, the Netherlands. They include Spain. Uh, they include Poland. And then in some other regions, what we're looking at is just a straight up curfew. Uh, for example, Spain uh, has a curfew that was instituted on Sunday. Uh, there's a curfew in certain areas of Greece and, and there's a curfew in France. So um, obviously, m- the evening hours are, are are the most important for movie theaters. They're when they see most of their traffic. So, though this isn't something that is specifically directed at cinemas, it, it certainly affects them uh, in a fairly large way, and, and has the potential to do that even more going forward if the numbers don't get back into control speaking of France, we are recording this episode on on Tuesday. You're probably listening to it on Thursday. Uh, And on Wednesday, there will be uh, slash was a a new announcement from the government uh, regarding the COVID situation that may impact cinemas. It's something that, uh, you know, we'll discuss in next week's episode if there's something big that comes out. Uh, in the meantime, I would really recommend going uh, going to boxofficepro.com, uh, where we provide daily updates on the global exhibition uh, situation. You know, like, uh, like you said, Russ, there are a lot of fiddly little details here. You know, everything kind of feels like it's constantly changing, constantly shifting, and it can be tough to, to keep up with what's uh, confirmed out there. But I think coming from the United States, uh, like I think most of our listeners, it's certainly interesting to me uh, to look at what's happening in Europe to gain some perspective on on what's definitely a very global industry.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I agree with that completely. But for now, let's kind of refocus on the U.S. Uh, so we've got Sean Robbins here to talk to us again today. Uh, Sean, let's look at the November slate because since the last time you were on, there have been a lot of changes. I think uh, "Quote unquote," there have been a lot of changes, is pretty much one of the main cinema taglines for 2020 overall. So, uh, give us a look at how things have uh, how things have updated since we last talked to you.
3: Yeah, I think at this point, like you said, we're accustomed to these shifting uh, release schedules from studios, and at this point, we're we're going into a November that we had all hoped would have Black Widow and James Bond. We've known for i guess a couple of months or a few weeks at this point i lose track that those won't be happening but we do still have a lot of titles particularly the major one is from universal uh, and that would be freaky and well uh, crudes as well and those are effectively the big major studio releases until december for the time being but we also have some smaller titles i think uh, tristar pictures just announced a film the last vermeer releasing close to thanksgiving and 20th Century Studios, once we get into December, has Free Guy. We're kind of at the point where exhibitors aren't getting the titles they hope to have. But I think it is important to highlight that a number of studios are releasing their indie titles and trying to give as much business to these theaters uh, as possible.
2: I think kind of the elephant in the room here when you say, I mean, the, the bulk of the major releases in November are from Universal. Obviously, they have that Windows discussion that is that is ongoing, I know we don't really like to, to speculate <laughs> on how windows are going to change and windows are going to shake out because who knows, honestly, but but I, I definitely find it interesting that Universal is what we have in November.
3: Right. That's a great point. And I think, you know, to, we, and we try to stay as neutral on that as possible. And I, I think the obvious... The obvious reality here is that it's, it's it works for Universal right now because they can get these the these movies out into theaters. Freaky, which has, I think has a lot of potential. I mean, under normal circumstances, this would have kind of a breakout little horror hit written all over it, and I still think it might on some level. Uh, I
1: mean, they they've done uh, they did previews of Freaky. They did like a drive-in premiere of Freaky in LA yeah. a week or two ago. Went down very well. People seem to respond really well to it. So uh, you know, hopefully, they can capitalize on that a little bit.
3: Absolutely, and you know, from from the studio's perspective, it, it's it's a case of let's put these movies out in theaters. Let's get freaky out there for that younger audience, that kind of teen to the young adult audience, well, even though it's rated R. But, and then we get Crudes, which is a family movie, and there haven't been a lot of those in theaters. And if they do well in theaters, that's great. But Universal now has that option, at least with their AMC deal, to be able to bring them to streaming towards the end of December. Or middle of December, I suppose it, it's kind of an interesting situation. You know, six months ago we were talking about how that deal could could be uh, viewed in a very negative way, and almost ironically, it might actually be a little bit of a saving grace for theaters right now.
2: So, what other changes then have we have we seen to the slate?
3: So the big one this week was was Sony's move of Ghostbusters, which they've now pushed from March to June of next year, and so it's a, a three month delay, not quite as jarring of a move, I think is the bond six month push a few uh, weeks ago, but this, this really does kind of underline the fact that you can tell studios are looking toward the end of the first quarter and big beginning of second quarter as the earliest time frame for when business can hopefully start getting back to normal. And when we, when we start seeing more consistent tentpole releases on the schedule, but as we know, that's, you know, six months ago, we kind of talked about hopefully being do- doing that right now. So Right. Uh right. it comes down to a vaccine and and a lot of other things going on in the world right now.
1: And meanwhile, we still have a pretty packed uh Christmas time window. You know, you've got Wonder Woman is holding for the time being. News of the World, which is also a universal title, the other Tom Hanks movie for this year, the previous one being Greyhound, which went to Apple Plus, you know, that's slated to come out on December 25th. That just released a trailer a few days ago. So there's some confidence there. But I guess we had uh, a month ago, we had confidence about uh, the Thanksgiving uh, corridor, which is now significantly reshaped. So what do you think we're looking at as far as December...
3: Right. That's a great point. And it's, it's, you know, we record this a couple of days before it airs. So who knows what could be announced by the time everyone is listening to this Thursday. But with Wonder Woman, I think that's in a way the hardest to bank on, but it is still the most important one. I think a lot of these other titles, such as Death on the Nile, probably News of the World, feel a little bit more likely to release because they don't have multi hundreds of millions of dollars on the line with a franchise. And so it, it's a little bit tough to assess like what's most likely to move and what isn't. But I, I think kind of the clear answer is, especially now that that first weekend in March or second weekend, uh, whichever it was that Ghostbusters left, that now kind of leaves open a window for Warner Brothers to be able to push Wonder Woman a few months instead of another half of a year if they decide that they need to do that. That's honestly what I think everybody kind of is bracing for right now, uh, as much as we all want to see it around Christmas. And maybe it still happens. but reality is that there, there's a good chance that that's probably the most likely date that would go to.
2: I do think it would be fitting if News of the World got some money for for movie theaters this Christmas season. Definitely Tom Hanks uh, getting diagnosed with with COVID-19 was a thing that brought it home for a lot of people, what it feels like 20 years ago. So uh, <laughs> if he could bring it full circle and, and help us out right now, I think that would be, you know, thank you, Tom Hanks. We we believe in you. We believe you can t- <laughs> if anyone can do it.
3: That's a great it's point because he, yeah, uh, yeah, he he was he kind of made a few comments about Greyhound and how he really wanted people to see that in theaters. So hopefully, this will kind of be, you know, a, a, a like you said, bring it full circle.
2: And we actually did have another. Uh, it was a Sony release, wasn't it? Happiest Season that is going to Hulu. It was. It's a holiday release. It was going to come out in November, but it's it's Christmas ish.
1: Right. Yes. Yes. And then we're left with the idea that I think I don't know personally. I guess. I am hopeful that we'll see Wonder Woman this year, but I also kind of feel like I'm not gonna fully believe we're gonna see Wonder Woman this year until it's actually open, <laughs> like on December 24th or whatever. If Warner Brothers announces that Wonder Woman is being pushed, I I guess none of us could really be exactly surprised with that.
2: It's 2020.
3: <laughs> yeah, I would I honestly, I would hope or expect that they. Don't wait that long, but I'm trying to think back. I think the last time they delayed it, it was maybe five to six weeks before the planned October date. So we're kind of coming up on that window now where we should find out, I would think, probably by the middle of November.
1: I would, yeah, I would think that certainly by mid-November, we at the latest would be where they they move it. It seems like five or six weeks out is a pretty reliable window at this point for where something massive like that is going to be moved. So hopefully we can cross that boundary. Well, thank you, Sean, uh, for th- your insights. Great to talk to you again. And uh, hopefully the next time we speak, uh, the the calendar will look a little bit more even.
3: Absolutely. It's always great to talk with you guys. This is
1: uh, the point where I'm going to remind everyone to take our survey again, if you haven't done so already. Uh, it's, it would be a huge help to us. So thanks very much for participating. And now, Rebecca, you and I recently spoke with Lila Meadow-Connor, the Executive Director of the Film Festival Alliance.
2: Uh, It brings to mind something that that Sean just said a few minutes ago, actually, that the major studio releases may be hugely in flux, but we're still seeing a lot of independent smaller releases. Uh, And the same is true with film festivals. You know, a lot of the the major players are are definitely in flux, Uh, but we're seeing a lot of regional film festivals uh, that are still in the works, that are still coming out, that are still promoting movies and really adapting for the COVID-19 era landscape. So it was really great to, to talk with Layla about that and specifically how the really important, crucial symbiotic relationships between regional film festivals and local community independent and in our house theaters can really continue during this time. Let's kick it to our feature for this week, uh, Leela Men O'Connor, Executive Director of the Film Festival Alliance. So Leela in the U.S., all the theaters shut down in very short order in March, over just a couple of weeks. Can you give us kind of a snapshot of what that period was like for you at the FFA? Like, was there a sense from the get-go that this would have an
0: impact on festivals taking place, even through the fall and winter of this year? In early March, when COVID seemed like it might have an effect on things happening in the US, we started a session of group calls. And the very first call that we had um, for both festivals that are members and festivals that were not, we invited everybody who was part of the festival community. It happened to take place the afternoon that South By canceled. And the whole call was Are you going to South By? I'm still going. I'm still go- going. I'm not going. I'm not going, you know? And then literally an hour later, South By canceled. And that was sort of when everything, you know, hit the fan. So after that initial call in March, we just, we started hopping on calls every week and um, it was definitely a marathon at the beginning of this. Uh, No one had any clue that this would affect fall festivals up until honestly, the end of August, there were festivals that were happening in the fall that were like, we're still going to do an online edition. And I don't think it really dawned on everyone until, you know, really September, the beginning when uh, with TIFF and all of, um, all of that and Telluride that like, this really wasn't going to happen. And that it really became more of a marathon than a sprint.
2: So what was your response then? I mean, I know a lot of film festivals from big ones like TIFF down to smaller, more regional fests have kind of shifted to a more digital model, maybe like a digital in-person hybrid You know, in TIFF, which is obviously in Canada, and and, and they can do that. What have been some of sort of the innovations that, that the festival circuit has come up with so that they wouldn't have to just not do anything at all this year.
0: Yeah, for those festivals that decided to, to continue, um, so many of them went online, as you know. And really quickly, the platforms have adapted to support the online delivery of film um, and uh, make it easy for audiences overall, typically. Um, a lot of festivals we saw do drive-ins. Um, Sidewalk Film Festival did their entire festival at a drive-in, which equated to quite a lot of work as well. Um, And so the the virtual festival, online festival, doesn't come without its costs and without its fair share of work. But there are some advantages. Um, You can reach audiences that are new to your festival. You have accessibility to guests and filmmakers who may not have been able to attend your festival before. Um, And festivals have really been forced to be creative and innovative, um, from the parties they're doing to the, you know, the the filmmaker events that they're doing. I attended a filmmaker mixer for Indie Memphis last week and they had over 250 filmmakers in the call. And it was really cool. It was the first time I kind of felt like, Oh, I had that film festival vibe like with all these filmmakers who were super excited to be there and be together. Um, you know, this, this group of, of regional film festivals who make up the bulk of FFA are <laughs> scrappy, you know, creative, innovative, you know, entrepreneurs and much like independent filmmakers they have to reinvent every year, and you have to raise the money, and you have to make it happen, and and it's a labor of love. And um, so, it's not surprising that so many of them have been so successful.
1: Now, my experience with a lot of festivals, as wide as you know Sundance and TIFF, and then certainly going to regional festivals, is that a lot of these fests do attract an older demographic that likes to patronize the arts, likes to be in touch with what's going on, but is perhaps not as tech savvy. Have you seen demographic changes in attendance as some of these festivals have gone to a virtual model? And are there other challenges associated with the reliance on technology and the intersection with different audience groups?
0: Yeah, of course. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is just the importance of audience as a stakeholder in the film festival and exhibition world. I think that for the most part, most of the platforms have done a pretty good job of educating their users and the, and festival organizers to be able to answer questions. Of course, there are challenges with all sorts of technology. We've all heard about the sort of fires that happen that would happen in a physical environment too, but you know, translated to online, equate to um, you know having just a lot of customer service. I think that the the the, the audience that you're speaking of, who is the dedicated festival audience, um, they're still dedicated, and you know, most of them have grandkids who they're talking to on Zoom every day, or you know, they're learning how to engage in this virtual world. And I think that they're willing to do that. But I think that you know, there's so much content out there right now uh, that reaching those new audiences is what's going to be the challenge, especially when we're able to go back to physical spaces. Is the existing audience going to be comfortable coming back into those spaces? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to audience engagement and building new audiences. And I think that the existing models kind of broken, and we're going to have to look at different ways to do that, and collaborate with filmmakers and exhibit uh, distributors and cinemas to do that.
1: Real quick, I, uh, kind of an associated question: um, a huge ingredient in the recipe for festival success is the volunteers. You know, you've got people who volunteer one year after another. Some of them go on to be involved in festivals in a more official capacity. Some become filmmakers. You know, how has this years festival circuit affected the ability of someone to volunteer and what that means for them and what that means for festivals.
0: That's a great question because there are so many volunteers who make up the core of of nearly every film festival, you know, from tens to thousands of volunteers. And you know, how do you keep those volunteers engaged? How do you uh you know, and maybe there are seasonal workers and maybe they weren't hired this year because there wasn't a job for them and then they go off and find another job and they're not coming back. So you're losing that institutional knowledge. So it really is an issue about how to keep people engaged and how you'll keep them engaged going forward. I think that's something really to think about. I'm not sure if that answered your question because I kind of got lost in my thought there.
1: No, I totally get it. And uh, I think your mention of institutional knowledge is a really big deal. Uh, You know, you've got uh, I guess I thought of the question in part because you're just talking about how customer service has been an aspect of uh, this year's festival climate, and certainly volunteers are a huge part of that. And the knowledge that they have, you know, these people who've, you know, volunteered at Sundance or any given festival for 10 years know a lot of stuff that it's impossible to pass on to somebody else, you know, in an info packet and yeah i don't have any good insights on how to adapt that volunteer model to what we're what we see now and uh, much less how to change things going forward to make, to make it uh, uh effective as you know as the festival circuit changes in response to this year
0: exactly and how do you take somebody you know who's who's been picking your filmmakers up at the airport for 20 years and try to teach them how to to do customer service for online technical support. You know, it doesn't always translate.
2: Going back to what you said, you know, I I was interested to hear your point on, you know, it's not just festivals themselves, it's the theaters and people might not feel comfortable going back to them, you know, for for quite some time now. Festivals, especially regional festivals, I, I feel like they're very closely interlinked with the art house cinemas in their given community you know it's it's almost kind of like a, a symbiotic relationship in many ways as a lot of these festivals move online or have online components how can you do things in such a way that still benefits or still involves the actual theaters where you normally would be holding physical screenings
0: that is such a good question because all of a sudden we're all sort of living in the same universe of presenting everything virtually. You know, all these art house cinemas are forced to do to virtual screenings and festivals are doing virtual screenings. And I haven't really seen any example of a partnership between like an art house and a festival um, that I can think of. I'm sure there are um, organizations out there that are collaborating, but all of a sudden we're all playing in the same exact field.
2: And what you said about, about customer confidence, it's like how how do festivals, how do studios, how do other vendors, you know, is that message of here's what the theaters are doing to be safe, getting the word out. Is that, or should that be solely on the theater's shoulders to communicate that or do film festivals, you know, have a part in getting that, that message out. Granted, I don't think in the United States, anyone's going to be holding any big in-person festivals anytime soon. So it's, it's kind of an in the future thing, but you know, have you have you put any thought to that in, into the future of that relationship between festivals and physical theaters and how you can maybe like, I don't know, support or help out a, a lot of these theaters that are really in, in a pretty big crisis point right now?
0: Absolutely, because so many of these festivals are beholden to these venues that they, you know, if, even if a festival, say, feels ready to return, their you know premier venue may not be open. And they have to then think about all of the issues that come along with that. So I do think it's a collaborative process. I think that we all have to work together again, like distributors and the exhibitors and the festivals and the filmmakers to really convey, especially to the audiences, you know, what the messages that we want to convey um, and when it's safe to come back and what feels right for everybody. I personally run a little micro cinema here in Wichita where I live and it's 30 seat cinema. I just opened it up, um, yesterday and it's a 10, 10 people capacity, which is really nothing. Um, and I'm, you know, trying to find films to book. First of all, Wichita is not really a desirable market, but, um, you know, some, some distributors I've heard back have said like, well, we're not booking any films theatrically because we just don't trust, you know, we don't want to contribute to anything COVID related and fine. But you know, also where's the trust in the exhibitor to be doing doing the right thing? Yeah,
2: what are you what are you gonna do three months from now when you need theaters to show your films? Like
0: <laughs> Exactly.
2: <laughs> ten people though, that sounds like I could I could gather to, gather together a ten person pod and then just it was I, I was I was
1: just looking like, hey, how long would it take me to drive to Wichita?
0: You'll <laughs> oh, take you I'd two and that. a half hours.
1: <laughs> Without wanting to go, you know, to much into the doom and gloom angle here. I'm another thing I've been really curious about overall is, you know, theaters and festivals are not the only things that have had to shut down because of COVID. Um, we've lost a lot of time that would have been filled with production, which means that, you know, next year, uh, you know, 21, 22, we look at well, how many movies are there going to be based on what was able to shoot this year and what was not. Have you had any conversations that discuss where festivals are going to be over the next couple of years due to the fact that people haven't been able to shoot movies this year?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think 21 isn't as much of a concern for people as 22 is. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of films that may be in posts now that we're able to get in under the wire that we'll be able to submit for 21, but I think 22 is really where we're looking. And I've had conversations with filmmakers who don't really seem too worried about it. I think, though, you know, just like film festivals back in March, April, May, filmmakers, there was a lot of concern over whether they should play the virtual festival circuit. Um, and now I think it's, you know, I've had enough conversations with filmmakers who are like, yep, this is just what the festival circuit looks like right now. And, you know, um, you do what you would do in a normal circumstance. If your festival's a documentary that needs to play before the 2020 election, you should get it out there. If it's an Evergreens piece, um, maybe you can wait till, till you know, Q2 or Q3 of 2020 one, to get it in, in physical theaters if that's what you really want to do. But again, for filmmakers, they really need to look at what the point of the festival circuit is for them, you know, as, as they are submitting their films to festivals.
2: In in moving festivals online, and, and this is something that I, that I guess applies to independent cinemas who are doing virtual theatrical as well, have you found, you know, have festivals had to change or rethink how they market or sell, like, consumer behavior in, in a way. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking for myself, I've seen a few festival titles over the last couple of months, but for me, like if I'm not physically going to a place, I'm probably not going to do it, which has played havoc on my workout routine over the last few months. But like, if I'm just in my house, it's, it's harder to make myself, uh, you know, quote unquote, go to a screening. Is, is that something that yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't quite know what I'm asking. I guess no, we can figure that out. But yeah, thinking. just in terms of like changing customer
0: behavior and getting people used to the new normal with this sort of thing. Yeah, I think the festivals that happened in the spring, you know, had an advantage. The disadvantage was they, they had to scramble and take things online very quickly. Like Cleveland Film Festival is one of the first, you know, big regional film festivals that did that, and very very successfully. They have a very loyal audience who followed them. So that the disadvantage was not really knowing what they were doing, but the advantage was having this sort of novelty of being an online film festival and being you know this is the first time that this is happening. um now the fall festivals, you know they are they have the advantage of of having better technology of having you know more questions answered, um of having just more overall knowledge, but at the same time, there is just so much content out there. and I think for the consumer there, there are there are so many film festivals. <laughs> I'm still and trying to catch up at the New York Film Festival, yeah. and then Fantastic Fest is happening. It's insane, and and the great thing is that you can go to every one of them for the most part now. Um, but also, you know, you there's just so much content coming from streamers and subscription services, and like, how do you cut through the noise when every day you're getting something in your, you know, inbox? It's like you might like this on Amazon or Netflix or Hulu, and you can just click to it. When you have to go for a film festival, you have to go. Um, you know um you have to go online you have to pay for it you have to do all this stuff and and so there that is an obstacle i think and that's and then that's an issue but again like the beauty of film festivals is that they have this you know trusted curatorial voice um from the audiences that they serve so hopefully those loyal audiences will still tune in and hopefully there'll be ways for them to attract new audiences i mean because of the nature of, of being able to post things on social media, you know, and, and word of mouth is such a huge, huge component of, of getting the, getting the, spreading the word about, about festivals. Um, so yeah, I think the other thing, the other big thing that seemed to have changed is the marketing, t- marketing timeline. Um, so where in, you know, normal days you would have put in or olden days, you would have put your, printed program out a month before the festival. Now, literally you can do things like a week before and be like, Hey, we're screening this because people's time spent, you know, attention span is so much shorter. It's like, Oh, there's a squirrel and you get, you, you know, it's a, you click away from what you're doing.
2: Um, I, it, I
0: see there's a movie I want to see and it's time like before
2: 48 hours, I'm going to forget about it.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like just figuring out like how to capture people's attention is really, really tricky, but really, really key.
1: And certainly part of, you know, uh, relationship building is a key component of the festival experience. I think for people up and down the ladder on any level or, you know, in whatever position they hold in the festival ecology and Zoom calls and video calls, as much as I think everybody's, you know, we've all done a lot of them over the past six months. uh, I think there's still a level of excitement uh, to some of those calls now and being able to be on a call with the filmmaker or even, you know, I've done a couple of calls just with groups of people that I don't talk to all the time, but are like, Oh, normally we would be at this festival together. And this is the time when we catch up. Uh, and so there have been some calls that are simply replicating that experience and there's still something valuable there. And it is still the, the idea of the festival that is what's pulling all of that together.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then that, again, like I, I'm happy that like these these regional festivals have built such amazing audiences within their communities because I feel like even if, you know, the Tallgrass Film Festival is going online, they still have a whole city that is excited about the event and hasn't experienced the online version of that. So I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, audiences will continue to support these organizations that they're, you know, they're they're used to being a part of.
2: This is the first year I can go to the TCM Film Festival. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, was never in the, I was never in the right part of the country before. <laughs>
0: But it's also a really interesting time to be able to explore festivals like we were talking about Kukuloris and never having been to Kukuloris before. Um, now you can go to Kukuloris this year. and I could go
1: to Oxford. I've always wanted to go to Oxford. I've never been able to. You know?
0: Exactly. So there's so many... There, there's, there are some really exciting things that you can do um, and just sort of to get a taste of those communities that you've been looking for and the programming that comes out of them. I mean, some of these festivals are so really wonderful. I mean, Kukuloris and their programming and... Um, Indie Memphis, they just have titles that you maybe wouldn't find other places, and I think that's really great because a lot of festivals, you know, they might show a lot of films out of TIFF or, you know, so on. But I think that finding these true independent films, you know, distributors should be paying attention to those festivals this year.
1: And and as much as we can talk about uh, you know, the the glut of, of of titles available on streaming services and Netflix and things like that, The simple truth is that these festivals are still playing a lot of movies that are never going to be prominent on a streaming service. And that does not connote anything about their uh, legitimacy or their value or the interest that they hold to audiences. Um, And so there's, you know, the festival program, especially the regional festival, still offers a lot to people um, that goes against the grain of what they can find on Netflix or Amazon or whatever.
0: Exactly. And I think that's where film festivals have an advantage over art house cinemas is that they have the relationship directly with the filmmakers and they're not beholden to the distributors.
1: Rebecca, thank you for putting that interview together. It was great to hear from Layla and get a picture of what the independent and regional film festival scene looks like right now and what it means for the future. This episode of the box office podcast was written and outlined by Rebecca Polly and narrated by Rebecca, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. And once again, we would love you to take part in our brief survey about what we're doing with the podcast, what you'd like to hear, what you wouldn't like to hear, how much you can't wait to see the movie Dune, uh, and how much you can't wait for me to stop talking about the movie Dune. We will be back next week with further developments in the exhibition space and cinema overall. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.